0: Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth, trusted authority on executive and transactional liability and president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today I'm joined by Skip Mayner, general partner of New Spring Capital, based in Pennsylvania NewSpring Capital, for 20 years, has partnered with high-performing, lower-middle-market companies in dynamic industries to catalyze new growth and seize compelling opportunities. Recently featured in Mergers and Acquisitions magazine, Skip is the founder of NewSpring's dedicated buyout strategy, NewSpring Holding. And so then there, you're going to find there's going to be a lot more to NewSpring than meets the eye. And we have just the person to walk us through this. So, Skip, thanks for joining me
1: today. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, before we dive into all things NewSpring, let's give our audience a little bit of context and we'll start with you. What led you to this point in your career?
1: Well, it's I guess I've been in private equity for about 26 years now, uh, so it's been quite a ride. And I I guess I I think I started private started my private equity journey when I was in college when I started two companies. Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't the Elon Musk of the time, but it was enough money to uh, you know pay for beer and, uh, and a couple of books maybe. Um, but I, you know after I graduated from college, I started two additional companies, and I really think. Again, that's where I started in private equity because I've always, you know, really, you know, I think, taken a highly operational approach uh, to the companies uh, that I've ultimately invested in, in my, in my career. Um, uh, you know, I was 23 years old when the bank called me and told me I wasn't making payroll uh, and I had to figure it out. Uh, so I've sat on that, that entrepreneurial and that founder side of the, the table. Uh, I went back to business school after selling uh, 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 two of the companies and, and really, part of the reason I went back to, to business school was to, you know, a, you know, a small business uh, owner oftentimes feels like the world, re- you know, the world revolves around uh, them, and it really it was far from the truth. And there were things happening in the macro environment that I really wanted to understand. And um, so, graduated from Wharton in '95, and got into to private equity uh, really in the in the mid '90s. Um, so I've seen a lot of the the cycle and a lot of the the maturation of the industry. I think when I graduated from Wharton. You know probably less than 10 5% uh, of us went into private equity. Um, you know, that's probably closer to 25, yeah. 30 percent. Um so it's you know it's been a it's been a great ride. I've again seen you know many, many cycles and uh, you know, thankfully around to 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 talk about the cycles.
0: Well you now contrary to its name, okay, New Spring I mentioned in the intro is not new to private equity or one of the rare firms out there that have been around now for two decades. So uh, as we get in, and we talk about New Spring, let's kind of open it up with I always like finding out, um, you know, the culture of a company or the insight if, if you figure out, you know, how they came up with their name, specifically because it's not named Maynard Capital. So let's <laughs> we'll start with the name. Tell me about NewSpring.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's all about, you know, we're all about growth and we're all about formation. And I think, you know, just the combination of, of really that, you know, ideas springing forth and, and and you know, and surrounding them with, you know, with this idea of how to take companies to the next level. New Springs seemed like uh, an appropriate name. I can't take credit for it. Uh, some of my my partners and predecessors, yeah, you know, could. But again, I think the, the culture around, again, we focus on the lower middle market, and again, so that could be companies in our definition between 10 and 100 million in size. Those are even at 100 million still very small companies in the in the whole scheme of the world. And I think that the notion of NewSpring really helps. You know, we, you know, we want to take a fresh approach to you know the company building experience.
0: Well, and it sounds like you're on the beginning of a cycle. You're not at the end of a cycle, so. You know, you got that emphasis. And as being, you know, experienced at 20 years again, it's, it's really impressive. But 20 years in this space, you're not doing just one thing. New Spring is a, a series of a number of silos. Let's talk about those for a moment.
1: Yeah. And it's, look, it's, it's, it's a fun story to talk about because, again, the, the longevity. Uh, of the firm you know again I, I can't take you know credit for it is, is, is really really impressive so you know and i guess i'm you know i'm proud to be a part of it you, you, we just invested our two billionth dollar um uh, over that 20 22 years uh, that we've involved in 184 companies and what's really interesting and this you know talks a little bit about the maturation of private equity it took us 17 years to invest the first billion and then it took us five years to invest the next billion. And we, we do that uh, through, we have five investment strategies. Uh, again, each focused on a different segment of what a lower middle market company might need. Um, so I'll get to my, my segment last, but we have a growth uh, strategy that invests in software and tech enabled services companies. Um, they just closed their, their fifth fund and they do minority capital, minority equity capital uh, under the balance sheet of companies that, that really need a, a last round of capital to get them to profitability. Their average, in, I think, company investment set, uh, is maybe 20 million in revenues. Um, our healthcare fund, which they're closing their third fund right now, is focused on again similar growth stage companies, but tech-enabled services companies all around uh, the healthcare space, especially uh, pharma and niche clinical providers. And then we have a mezzanine fund. Our mezzanine fund is closing their fourth fund, um, and that is uh, you know focused on subordinated debt and really supporting other private equity sponsors uh, into buyout transactions. Um, and then we recently founded what we call NewSpring Franchise. Uh, NewSpring Franchise is a group uh, started to uh, really buy into uh, you know, compelling and interesting franchise and uh, multi-unit businesses, uh, consumer-oriented businesses. Um, And then what I run is what we call New Spring Holdings. Uh, New Spring Holdings is is our buyout function uh, that we started in 2015. And what we do is uh, do uh, control buyouts into founder and family-run businesses. We really uh, like to find, you know, uh, companies that have uh, you know, been on a journey uh, for, you know, five to 20 years, but, you know, may have a transition issue or, or, or a desire to grow to the next level and want a partner to do so. So again, it's with those, those five strategies that we kind of look at the lower end of the market. And um, again, it's a, it's a nice broad horizontal approach where really, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the need that a middle market company uh, might have, a lower middle market company might have, you know, we can solve in in this building.
0: Well, that's something because, uh, and I've got a real soft spot for the lower middle market, particularly because you've got owners and founders that started with nothing and created tremendous value where, where, like I said, nothing existed before. And they don't know how to get past that inflection point. There are some that are content to stay where they are, but there are others that want to, you know, they they either, you know, by just their success, they're a victim of their success. So they either get to the inflection point by becoming, you know, they're too too small for enterprise, but they're too big to be small.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they they need some outside force or outside assistance to help them. And if there aren't, you know, experienced owners that have gone through that process multiple times, they don't know where to turn. And but you know, and if they don't know anybody, they get by default, they go to an institution or a brand name or, or something that's out there. And they really are left short. And what happens is, unfortunately, they're, they're underserved, but they're overcharged. And that's why it's helpful to have firms like NewSpring out there that are really committed to this segment. Talk to me about the issue where you've been around, again, I keep hammering on this, but you've been around for over 20 years, and you did not scale upstream in terms of deal size. Mm-hmm. Why is that?
1: Well, you know, I think it's because we we love the opportunity at the lower middle market. I mean, again, you have uh, that's where most of the companies are. And if you look at where um, you know where we are in you know in the in the cycle, you know, the oldest baby boomer right now is seventy five years old, and we're in the midst of what's going to be as these baby boomers age, you know, the largest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. It's something like ten trillion dollars that's tied up in in you know family run businesses. And you know we want to be we wanted to be a part of that, so that's why NewSpring chose to stay and keep our fund sizes small, so that we could continue to to really be experts and build a preeminent firm that focuses on these lower middle market companies. And you're right that you know the needs are the needs are very different. You know, I, I you know, Patrick, you, you 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 hit the nail on the head. Which you know when you when you find a, a business owner that's you know has a forty million dollar business and they're making five million dollars in EBITDA a year you know, and, and they have, they, they're, they're at a point of inflection. And you know, what, in order to grow the business, they may have to take the EBITDA backwards or you know, go on a hiring spree or do things they haven't done, like go international. What we've done is build our firm to serve all those needs. And really what, you know, it starts with being able to apply a disc- different risk profile. An owner, all their eggs are in one basket. And when we do a trans- transaction with an owner, you know, we'll go in and we'll say, look, we're going to provide you with a, with uh, an ample amount of liquidity today, so you can diversify your wealth. But then we'll ask the owner to to roll in twenty to forty percent of the of the ongoing transaction. And and you know you know frankly as an owner that's like having a you know a you know somebody manage your wealth for you. Uh, but it's just in your private equity asset because what we're going to do is apply our approach and what we've done at NewSpring Holdings is really build this go-to-market strategy where we've surrounded us, ourselves and our ECHO with very senior executives who have built businesses. Again, we're, we're not former investment bankers, we're former operators. Uh, my partner, one of my partners uh, ran a $2.5 million business that he built uh, organically and through uh, 100 acquisitions uh, over, a, over a 30-year career. And we've surrounded uh, that team where of, of, of you know, functional operating experts where we can go in and if we get involved, these are our experts that help you know, take a company and position it then for different organic means that we might bring to the table or a significant amount of M&A. We've, you know, we have uh, four companies in, in, our, in my portfolio today We've done close to 30 acquisitions in the last five years into those four companies. And we really think you can create an exponential outcome by by doing both organic and acquisitive uh, tactics.
0: I think it's just a competitive advantage that I hear you have. One of the questions I I ask is, what do you bring to the table? But I think clearly this operational approach and growth through operation is a huge advantage over other firms or investors out there that are more financially guided. And I think that by doing this, I, I can imagine just putting myself in the in the shoes of an owner. I want to grow. I want to change. I want to do this, but I don't want to bet the company on it. And there's no yeah. margin for error. And so you not, don't only really need the expertise from somebody that's outside that cares and wants to partner with you, but you want to be able to diversify you know, your wealth so that you aren't betting your entire future on a change that you need to do anyway, and so I think it makes it a lot easier.
1: Yeah, we call it, we call it a different lens of ownership. Again, and okay. you know, it's a, an owner is going to make a certain decision that we would all make a rational decision. You know, if they own 100% of, of yeah. one thing, and you know, this really allows you to expand and, and put a different lens of ownership on. Again, we're you know we're not an ATM. You know, money isn't yeah. free. But again, if if an owner is able to diversify their wealth they could make different decisions. And then, then again, by sitting next to us, you've got the former CEO of a $3 billion company. You've got, you know, we're gonna put board members on the company that are industry experts. You know, and on our, on our boards today, we have the former CIO of Comcast and the former chairman of NASDAQ and other really preeminent individuals that are gonna be the industry guides. And then we've got the functional guides uh, that can fill in holes if there's holes at the companies. Um, or that can be strategic advisors to those companies as they embark on what is, you know, what is a new, you know, kind of uh, op tempo and a new, you know, kind of way of, of looking at the business.
0: The the other advantage I see for private equity over strategics and other you know M investors out there is that you'd mention this with the rollover of equity is the opportunity for a second bite at the apple for owners and founders, which I think is great. Where they go ahead and agree to a you know hold on to a 30% minority stake in their company. And that 30% in five years could be worth more than the 70% that that they that they got at closing originally. And I think yeah, yeah. that's a formula for success. How could anybody turn away from that?
1: Well, and, and I can promise you that we work every day to make sure that happens because that's okay. the way that, that we're going to make money. And you know, look at the example is this, that if you, you know, the four companies we own today, uh, the aggregated revenues when we got involved in them is, were about fifty million dollars. Today they're over seven hundred million in revenues, and about you know close to sixty million of EBITDA. So, you know those owners uh, and the stake that they they they've rolled in and retained is you know is benefiting from that. And you know for me, you know losing sleep every night over how we're going to make them all successful.
0: And of course, we put in a disclaimer right now that past performance is not an indication of future results and all that good stuff. But I mean, you were seeing this because you've got a lot of, you know, very smart people and they're all committed, which I, which I really appreciate too. And the part of the passion of the lower middle market is that trust that you're all kind of pulling in the same direction. And that's outstanding. As great as all this sounds, I'm sure, you know, some listeners are sitting there saying, how do we get in on this? Give us a, a profile of your ideal uh, target. What is NewSpring sure. Holdings looking for?
1: Yeah, so again, this is the NewSpring Holdings segment of NewSpring. But we look for companies, let's say, between you know, 10 and $50 million in revenues. What we do is like to, to get started with, again, it's, it's a term everybody uses with a platform. And what we will have done uh, prior to that is really you know, try to take a deep look at an industry where we believe there's a decent amount of fragmentation. The companies that we target are are all profitable. Um, And because we do use a small amount of debt, um, you know, in in all of our transactions, you know, and and then we'll come in, we will, again, when we get involved, we buy a majority stake, give an owner a a, a nice payday today, but let us, you know, uh, move into the driver's seat with that owner as a partner um, that, you know, we can create the the best outcome together. And so then what we'll do is we'll we'll launch into a... um, uh, you know, a, a program where we, again, if we got involved, we've gotten involved, we think that there's a lot of fragmentation. And then we will try to aggressively not only work the 100-day plan where we're putting the organic uh, growth tactics in place, but then, you know, do a significant amount of MA around that. Um, and so, you know, really, it's, it's an owner it's who would want to get involved with this. It's an owner that's saying to themselves, well, gosh, I know there's something better out there, but I don't want to do it as we've talked about. And I want to take that risk but uh, it's a, it's an owner like that. It's so an owner that, that may have uh, you know may not have a, a a way to you know trans transition the business. Um, you know it may not be a like you know a, a stated uh, succession plan. And so you know those are places that we can uh, you know that we we find that we can uh, you know really uh, really maximize. Gotcha. With uh, and in terms of
0: industry, because you got a healthcare group and you've got mm-hmm. the franchise thing. Industries, geographies, any kind of uh, limitations or anything?
1: Yeah, primarily U.S. based, okay. um, um, and then you know we tend to look at the world through a horizontal uh, uh, view, yeah. uh, and that means we look for tech-enabled services companies, and so we look for a type of company, uh, and that puts us in uh, different vertical markets. In our four companies today, we're in fintech, uh, government services, uh, last mile logistics, think oh, about okay. e-commerce, etc. And, uh, and then cloud so again different vertical markets but you know the, the types of uh, dynamics we find at our companies uh, you know really pervade the vertical market again what we're you, know, you usually find when we go into a company is that they they haven't they don't have a big sales force they haven't focused on marketing the finance organization uh is is usually used as a, a way to you know know how much cash uh, they have in the bank and and how much their taxes are and right. so, what we try to do is ter- turn each one of those functional uh, groups into a strategic weapon, uh, and really help position for for growth. That again, when we deliver the company, uh, you know, to the to the next level, it's you know we've scaled it, we've de-risked it because a lot of times companies have customer concentration or uh, supplier concentration or or owner concentration. So what we would have done is diversified all that, and that that should mean that. You know, we deliver to more the the, the middle market um, uh, that you know a, a company that has a significantly less risk attached to it.
0: Well, I was at, on the exit side for this. You know, the the firms out there are getting bigger and bigger, and you've got SPACs, and so there are all these bigger entities, that buyers out there for your lower middle market. That when they're ready to graduate, there's a there's a whole you know very eager marketplace looking looking to make the acquisitions. Tell me about a. An epiphany that you witnessed with one of your uh, portfolio companies where you mentioned the hundred days where you come in, you do the analysis and you've got the game plan and you have laid out a plan of action. And tell me a time where in that in those early months, you just saw that owner and founder all of a sudden see the light bulb come on and say, I never thought I could pull this off. I, anything like that?
1: Yeah, look, it, it's and this is why I love what I do because yeah. you know we we really think that we create fundamental value. we again, there's a lot of ways to make money, and uh, you know financial engineering and and, and leveraging companies up and cutting costs that may be one way. The way we make money is through growth, and so it's it's really fun. Again, a lot of the companies we get involved with, you know, have not have not been in in growth mode uh, again for the reasons we've talked about, and so I think one of the most fun things is is when we come in and you know again i've heard this uh, many many times you know from from founders well we tried to hire a sales force i had a sales manager it, you know i i went through 3 of them in 2 years and it just wasn't working out so we just gave up that's painful and, yes those are painful yeah. times. and 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 so you know it's it's really hard to grow a company unless you you know again turn sales into a you know a real function with real strong people and so i think one of the most fun things is is to again you know we have we have the experts here to you know to start to bring in and build that sales function and it starts with better defining the customers better defining who you know you don't uh, want to do business with as well as who you do want to do business with because again a lot of the things we find are you know again any revenue is good revenue and that's not always the case when you want to when you want to uh, to grow and so you know really the, the most fun epiphany is when you you start to see the effect of bringing in an institutional quality sales team, and you start to see those growth numbers tip up, tick up, because organic growth is oftentimes, you know, far cheaper than uh, than uh, you know any other type. Yeah. So.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I, just a lot of fun, particularly that because I think you know either labor, personnel, or sales, marketing are those. Very nuanced types of types of practices that are really tough and they're very scary and that's that's something you bring on there. Mm-hmm. Now you've had over close to 200 acquisitions throughout this whole tenure. Um, let's talk real quick about how the that process has changed because it's gotten a lot easier for the whole M and A process. And one of the ways that's gotten easier is to reduce risk. For the parties involved and you know that's being done now by a product brought in by the insurance industry called reps and warranties insurance and the purpose of the product is essentially it takes the indemnity obligation between seller to buyer transfer that away from the seller for a couple bucks for premium to an insurance company therefore if there's a breach of the seller reps rather than a major escrow or fear of a big clawback by the buyer who's been Financially harmed because even though they did the diligence, something was missed. And in a perfect world, nothing would be missed, but that happens. And so this product has become a very elegant, elegant tool that's now available for the lower middle market. But you know, don't take my word for it. You know, skip good, bad, or indifferent. What's been your experience with rep and warranty insurance?
1: Yeah, look, it's it. For perspective, I remember the first time I used it was maybe. 15, 16 years ago and trying to find somebody to underwrite, you know, rep and warranty insurance, you know, there was sagebrush rolling through the streets. Uh, it was a very different market. And, you know, so I think you're right. It, it has increased the lubricity of getting a, of a, of getting a transaction done today. So we use it in 80, 85% of our transactions today. It really takes, um, I mean, it works just like insurance instead of one owner, you know, basically having all of the risk of, again, having made a mistake or having some warranty claim come up uh, from, you know, five years ago, it, will again, allows the pooled interest to, to, to underwrite to that. And uh, it's only the exception where we don't use it in, uh, in the trend. And again, in the significant amount of transactions we've closed uh, in the last five years.
0: Yeah, I think, I think the, the nicest development uh, in the success of rep and warranty has been Eligibility has increased, not tightened. The claims haven't hurt the industry, and you know very much at all. So rates have been low. They're beginning to rise solely because of demand. Demand for the product has gone way up, and and that's what's driven it. Uh, one of the things I did want to point out, because it's just not broadcast that often, is that rep and warranty was originally reserved for deals with a transaction value of 100 million dollars plus pre-COVID, just pre-COVID, that threshold would drop by a couple of markets down to deals as low as $20 million in transaction value. There is now, as of July 2021, a market out there that has a product that can ensure M&A deals with transactions from $1 million transaction value up to $10 million and ensure the entire transaction. Slightly different product. It is for sell-side deals. But what we think is important is that as you know, the market uh, grows that there are just different options available out there. And what we like is just the sheer number of add-ons that are happening. And so there may be preferred destinations for platform investments. There are going to be way more add-ons. And if you have tools that are now available for those add-ons, all the better. Skip, as we record this right now, you know, we're, we're passing through the pandemic and now we're dealing, uh, us Californians would almost call it the aftershocks with the Delta variant. So things are kind of hanging on. But we're coming in now, we're racing into end of 21, looking at 2022. What trends do you see going forward, either, you know, uh, macro or just new spring uh, yourself?
1: Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, first of all, you know, again, the the dealing with COVID, I think we all know that, you know, we thought uh, the vaccine was a total panacea. I think it's definitely helping, but I think, you know, COVID is now becoming more, you know, perhaps a, a longer term uh, part of our overall lives. And so, you know, that op tempo that COVID has created, uh, there's no, uh, it's not going to go away, uh, you know, anytime soon. So I think we're, you know, we're, we think we're going to deal with an economy, economy that is, is uh, you know, is, is affected by that. You know, at the same time, you know, there's a lot of dollars uh, sloshing around in the economy, you know, with what the Fed has done and what the tre- Treasury slash Congress has done at the same time. You know, there's there's a, there's a lot of capital out there. And, and, you know, thankfully, you know, the quick action, you know, that the, the government and Fed did uh, back in March, April, May last year, you know, I, you know served its purpose. Uh, you know, I think 2022 is, is going to be a great year um it's uh you know i do worry about you know going further out that you know we are going to see you know some issues in the economy um you know our companies are already seeing wage inflation you know you can take price hikes you know away but you know you don't take wages back no (laughs) Um, uh, that's true so um you know with you know with a lot of the things that happened with covid which some of which are good some are bad number one you know, um, a lot of people decided to retire and are not coming to, you know, back to the workforce. So that takes you know, a significant pool away. You know, the lack of immigration over the last five years, uh, you know, we need immigration to grow our our economy. Um, you know, on the good side, um, you know, a lot of, you know, I think the most business formation in the history of the country yeah. in the last yes. year. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so look, you know, there, there's a lot of good and bad, you know, I think that the key to founders and other people in private equity is you, you always have to assume that the you know again i've been doing this 25 years i think this is my third downturn you know and yeah. uh you know i guess we're in an upturn now but you know they're gonna talk about it. things yeah. go in cycles and so you have to you have to invest and, and run your businesses thinking that um you know you know take advantage of, of what what you can but but know that you've got architect for for the downside and um look we're, we're doing the same things. You know, today that we were doing, uh, you know, last year, it, it's a seller's market.
0: <laughs> it yeah. is not
1: buyer's market because there's all those dollars out there. So it's a great time to be a seller. We have to be disciplined. And, you know, I guess our thought is that if we do our right things by picking the right companies and then running our game plan, that we can create the growth dynamic uh, that, uh, you know, that allows us to kind of, you know, succeed in upturns and downturns. Skip? How can our
0: audience members find you? How can we find NewSpring Capital?
1: Um, uh, Our website is uh, Um, NewSpringCapital.com. We are uh, in uh, Radnor, Pennsylvania, right right outside of Philadelphia. Uh, My email is S-M-A-N-E-R at NewSpringCapital.com. And, uh, you know, happy to talk anytime.
0: Great, well, Skip, a lot of fun. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much.
1: All right. Appreciate it, Patrick. Take care.